Christmas, of course, is the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. Whenever we're singing songs about Christmas time, we talk about the King, because that's who Jesus is, as it was foretold. And so we're going to start tonight in Micah chapter 5, which is one of the most important prophecies about the birth of Jesus. And we're going to start at verse 2 of Micah chapter 5, where it says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. So these verses, which what begin the chapter in Hebrew is a little different than the English, but it begins a new prophecy here. They were written by the prophet Micah during times of distress in the land of Israel. It was a divided kingdom between north and south and the Assyrian empire was ravaging the world at this time. They were the wicked empire of the time. Nineveh was the capital city. You're familiar with the story of Jonah. It would go on that Assyria would destroy the northern kingdom, sack the city of Samaria, and carry the people away. They would chase all of the people in the southern kingdom into the city of Jerusalem, but the Lord would defeat them and prevent them from taking over the nation entirely. And you know later on that would be Babylon that would take over. But that's when Micah is writing. And he prophesies in the midst of all that, that a ruler would be born. The answer to their distress. It talks about his strength and his majesty, bringing peace, bringing victory. Micah might have been a pretty popular prophet at this point. But not only that, he says that this king is coming forth from of old, from ancient of days. Daniel would use that same phrase to describe the Lord. So this is not just any child who will be born, but this is God, very God, as we would come to describe Jesus later on. This is one of the great prophecies of Israel's Messiah. Messiah, you know the word Hebrew is Mashiach. It means the promised one, the anointed one, a king who would come and rid the people of their enemies. Every put down nation, every people group that's been oppressed, every individual that's gone through life, which is all of us, we long for a champion like that. Someone to conquer our enemies, to conquer evil, to conquer injustice. And at Christmas time, we celebrate the coming of that king, the fulfillment of that prophecy in Micah. And we know that this refers to Jesus because when King Herod, remember, is approached by the wise men that a king has been born, he calls the scribes and says, where is that king supposed to be born? And they quoted here from Micah chapter 5 and said, in Bethlehem in Judea. And it is, of course, the detail of the birthplace of the Messiah that makes that prophecy unique. There's lots of prophecies about the Messiah coming. That one is unique because it tells us where he was to be born, which is Bethlehem. If you want to flip over to Luke chapter 2, we're going to be reading from there mostly tonight. Let's read the first five verses as it talks about the fulfillment of these things. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. 
And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So, the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem. The events in the Roman Empire, many, many hundreds of years later, conspire to push this couple to the town of Bethlehem to be registered where their son Jesus will be born. Now, when Micah gave that prophecy in chapter 5, he felt the need to point out the insignificant status of Bethlehem. You, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you're too small to be considered one of the clans of Judah. That's unexpected, isn't it? If we're talking about the coming conqueror, right, we're talking about the Jewish Alexander the Great to come, He's going to be born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah, meaning if you're from there, you don't say you're from there. You got to say the next biggest town that you're from. It's too small to be considered one of the clans of the city. David was from Bethlehem. That's kind of cool, but it never became a significant city in Israel. Jerusalem today, we still refer to Jerusalem as the holy city. Being born there is a big deal, but Bethlehem is a backwater. Nobody's from Bethlehem, and if you are, it's not significant. Now to you and me, that doesn't mean so much. Where you're from, we say, is not nearly as important as where you're going. That's not how they saw it back then. And still in a lot of places, you meet people where where you're from matters. Because it's your heritage, your pedigree, your clan, right? What family do you belong to? Is there a history of nobility and strength there? This is the opposite of what you'd want if you're raising up a king. For example, when Jesus was announced to Nathaniel, Nathaniel famously said in John Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It mattered to that culture where you were from. And Jesus was disdained throughout his life for kind of being from nowhere. So we begin to notice, we're expecting the coming of Jesus, the glorious King of Kings, but his coming is not quite what we would have expected. God was up to something different. He wasn't coming from somewhere important, but from a backwater called the House of Bread, (laughs) Bethlehem. So he's not going to be born in a glorious place, but what about his parents, Mary and Joseph? Now, we say those names and they mean something to us, but surely the king back then would have been born to an honorable family, right? Well, no, of course, you know the story. The unborn Messiah is being carried to an insignificant location by disreputable parents. Let's read from Matthew chapter 1, if you want to flip to the left a little bit, verses 18 through 25. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Knew her not, of course, there is a reference to the sexual union between parents. So this couple was not noble. They were not rich. They were not even well known. They were poor. We know Joseph was a carpenter. He was a day laborer. He was a construction worker. And his wife was a nobody. So not only are we being born in a place that doesn't matter, but to people that don't matter. But beyond that, Jesus is being born under dodgy circumstances. 
We know that God was at work. We know the story. We know an angel appeared to Joseph and an angel appeared to Mary, and we, we know that. The other people didn't know that. And if a young lady today was to become pregnant, we don't know who the father is, and she says, oh, an angel appeared to me, you're going to scoff at that. That's how they would have reacted to Mary. And now here comes Joseph marrying this woman with a baby that is either his prematurely to these people's minds or to a baby that is not his. So these people's status has just fallen even farther. The bottom of the bottom now. So God is sending his son to be born to disreputable parents. If God's trying to raise up a king, why is he choosing the people that are the gossip of the whole town? On the wrong side of the tracks, in Nazareth, a bad place to be born in Bethlehem, an insignificant place. Maybe God is up to something. But we come back to our story. We see questionable parents taking their child to an insignificant town. And if we pick it up back in Luke chapter 2, we read verse 6 and 7. While they were there in Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. For there was no place for them in the inn. The glorious king is to be born. The one that's going to drive out Assyria and Babylon and all the enemies. And he's born in an insignificant city to disreputable parents. But now we see that even with those things, that child is still not going to have pride of place in those circumstances. The census had driven everybody home. This small little town was now full. It was packed. There was no place to find a, a room. You couldn't get a hotel. You had to go and sleep where the manger was. That means they were either in a stable or they were in a cave where they used to keep the animals, the overflow. The point is, this is not a place meant for people originally. You also need to remember, I've got a nativity scene too. They're great. But it's very unlikely Mary and Joseph are the only ones in this stable. That it would have been packed with other people that couldn't find room in the inn. So there's animals, there's lots of other people, there's crying babies, there's smells, there's horses neighing, and there's cows mooing, and sheep, and everything else stinking. The baby would have been born, the woman would have been screaming, there would have been blood, there would have been concern, there might have been fights breaking out with all the people sleeping so close. And after all that, he's laid in a feeding trough, a manger. Joseph had to reach over and take one from an ox or something and try and clean it out as best he could so they could put the baby in him. Rather than anything we would expect, God sent his son to be born in the worst, most common of circumstances. So common circumstances, as opposed to noble ones, insignificant city, and bad parents, or I, I guess I should say disreputable parents. Why is God doing this? He's raising up a champion. He's raising up a king, the Messiah. But why is he doing it this way? Well, I think we get a clue if you keep reading. Let's pick it up in verse 8 down to verse 21. This is the Linus story. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, 
Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So once again, we're faced with squalor, what's dirty and common, shepherds watching sheep. But they're the ones going to receive the announcement of the Messiah's birth. You might be tempted to look at the story and say, this can't be the guy. Disreputable parents, insignificant city, common circumstances, shepherds. This can't be our king. This can't be our Messiah. Nothing comports with anything we know about kings and conquerors. You know, you read stories of heroes, even guys like George Washington. When you tell the story later, you embellish the details. But it seems like God went out of his way to ruin the details and make it worse. Why is that? Yet here we see the angels, the heavenly host. Not a choir, by the way. A heavenly host is an army. These are the soldiers that that king is going to lead into battle. And they're making an announcement of glory to the shepherd. So this must be him. Jesus Christ is the king. He's been prophesied of old. He's been announced by angels and conceived by the Holy Spirit. But he's born to disreputable parents in an insignificant city, in squalor and in filth. Why did God do that? Because the promised son of God was not just prophesied to conquer Israel's enemies, but all evil in the world. Read your Bible. The problem for you and me is that as much as we want someone to conquer evil and injustice... You and I are contributors to the evil and injustice in the world. Every single one of us is consumed by sin. We cannot avoid doing the wrong thing. Don't say you're not a sinner. You know you're a sinner. You know you can't do all the things that you want to do. And thereby, we make the good world that God made worse. And if God is going to come and establish a righteous kingdom and judge sin then we all are going to be swept up in the same judgment because we make the world worse too. We contribute injustice too. We cause pain too. In our sins, apart from God, look at what we make. We have bad parts of town like Nazareth. We have disreputable relationships that are not just misunderstandings but serious ones. We have squalid lodgings where the poor can't even find a place to sleep at night. That squalor that Jesus is being born into is what sin creates. It's what we deserve. But there's good news. Because of his incredible love for those of us who were stuck in that mud, God determined to go before us and save us before he comes back as a judge. Read it in Philippians chapter 2 if you want to turn there, verses 5 through 11, talking about when Jesus came from a theological perspective now. It says in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus did what no human ruler would ever do. No Alexander the Great, not, not even somebody like George Washington or any of these other great military heroes or political heroes we're thinking about. They're not going to do what Jesus did. Jesus emptied himself of his divine privileges. Did he stop being God? Of course he didn't stop being God. That's impossible. What Jesus did was he says, I'm going to become a man and live as a man without availing myself of any of my divine privileges. He wasn't going to use any of his divinity to make humanity easier. He was going to come and share in our squalor. He was going to share in our dirty mangers and stables. He was going to share in our poverty. He was going to share in our bad reputations. He was going to share in Nazareth, that city that people say nothing good could ever come out of there. That's what Jesus did. Did he share in our sin? No, that's the one thing he didn't share. But he shared our humiliation, our uncleanness. He shared in the consequences of our sins. He had no glory during his life. He was despised and rejected. People couldn't stand Jesus. He was kicked out of cities. He was gossiped about. He was lied about. He was preached against. There was no room for him anywhere. There was no room for him on his first, on his birthday when he was born, Christmas Day. He had to sleep in the inn. His whole life, nobody had any room for Jesus. And his greatest humiliation, like Paul said in Philippians, was his death on a cross on Mount Calvary. He was crucified by wicked men. God himself experienced the worst torture and the worst death that wicked humanity ever came up with. And by encountering that horrible punishment, he tasted the fullness of what it means to be human. But he was God. His coming forth was of old, as Micah said. He couldn't stay dead. He rose again on the third day, triumphing over what it meant to be human by his deity. Only Jesus Christ could do that. He opened up a door of freedom and salvation, even to the ones that had held the hammer that drove the nails into his hands, to set us free from the slavery of sin. He promised to come and conquer Israel's enemies. God said, I'm going to drive out wickedness. I'm going to judge the world. I'm going to destroy injustice. But first, he said, out of love, I'm going to take the full brunt of that pain and wickedness and injustice on my own shoulders so that I can save some of those wicked, unjust people. And in so doing, he shared in our squalor. That's what Christmas reminds us of. When we see Jesus born in a manger, we're reminded that our mess does not keep us from God anymore. This is either the mess that you can't help, your circumstances of birth, or even the mess you've made yourself. And it's nobody's fault, but it's yours. It doesn't keep us from God any longer because God went down into the mess and endured our mess and endured our humiliation and shared in our uncleanness and touched the leper so that he could save him and save you and save me. That's what Christmas reminds us of. God with us, Emmanuel. God is here in the mess, in the squalor with you and me. There are those of us that were born in insignificant places with disreputable parents, born into filth and common circumstances. Those of us who are in poverty, like those shepherds. But God said, I love the people in poverty. I love the people that are insignificant. I love those that are messed up. I love the ones caught up in sin, which is all of us. 
And God said, I'm going to take the penalty of what that brought so that I could save them. Now make no mistake. Jesus Christ will return to destroy evil and establish his righteous kingdom. The last things Jesus said in his Bible, Revelation 22, starting at verse 12, he said, Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those, John writes, who wash their robes so that they may have the right to eat of the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Jesus said, I'm coming. I'm going to establish my kingdom. And outside is going to be all that wickedness that I've come to judge, that you know needs to be judged. Don't get, don't get into my face about that. You know it needs to be judged. We've been marching in the streets this year because of injustice that needs to be judged. God knows it, but he's waiting because it's not just them or them or them. It's you. It's me. And the Lord says, I'm waiting. Someday that judgment's coming. But in the meantime, the Lord says, I've done everything necessary to bring you to myself without judgment. So come, he says. Christmas reminds us not just of God's love, but of the hope he's provided. You have the hope of avoiding everything that you deserve as who you are. You know what you deserve. You're an Assyrian. You read the the book of Micah and the prophecy of Jesus coming and you say, oh yes, come Lord Jesus. But do you not realize that you yourself are the one that he's coming to deal with? Unless you receive his forgiveness. If you will humble yourself before God and ask forgiveness for what you've done, God will forgive you. He's already determined that he wants to forgive people. He's done everything that's necessary. And we remember it every year by celebrating Christmas. Our king is not a snob insistent on his own pomp and glory and honor. He humbled himself to your level so that he might save the very people who deserve his judgment out of love. That's good news. Are you thirsty? He said, if you're thirsty, come and drink of the water of life. Jesus said, if anyone comes to me, I will forgive him and out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Do you want your life to be the squalor and the pain only or do you want the river of life that only Jesus Christ can provide? Call on the name of the Lord. Say, God, I'm so sorry for everything I've done. I need that forgiveness. That's all it takes because that's all you can do. And so the Lord did everything necessary, sacrificing his only son who was born as a baby all those years ago so that he could offer it to you freely and so that I could offer it to you on his behalf right now. This is why Christmas is the brightness in the darkest days of the year, the coldest days of the year, even in a hard year like this one. This, this whole setup that we've got here is a reminder of the pain and the brokenness of this world that Jesus is going to fix someday. You say, why hasn't he fixed it yet? Because he's waiting for you. He's waiting for you. Come and receive his forgiveness, and then you can rejoice with the rest of us at all that God has done. Praise the Lord. Lord God, it's in the name of Jesus Christ, who was born all those years ago, that I pray right now. God... We're still in a big mess. (laughs) 
Lord, this year has been a messy year. It's reminded us of all the, all the things that are not right yet in the world. God, I pray in Jesus' name that you would draw many to yourself and that this would be a year that wakes some people up who realize they can't continue the way they've been going. May they realize that the answer is not more of the same, is not to numb the pain with fun or drugs or whatever, and is certainly not to escape through suicide, but it's to find forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Maybe you're only watching today because it's Christmas time and you felt guilty about it. Hey, Jesus is calling you today. He's calling you. He wants you to be saved. Call on his name and say, God, I need, I need Jesus. I need that forgiveness that he's talking about. I don't get all of it, but I need it. He'll hear you and we'll help you with the rest of it. Praise the Lord.